Um, I really loved getting ready to kind of talk about this stuff this week because if you if you grew up in the church, um, do you ever feel like there are just stories that you maybe heard so often in Sunday school or whatever that they kind of just become routine? Um, but the truth is, like there's always so much more in, in God's Word and the deeper we go. And so anyway, the stories we're going to look at tonight were kind of like that for me. We're just fun and a lot of interesting facts that I got to learn. Um, also, just kind of as a side note, so we've been studying Genesis um, since the fall semester, and last week, Scott did a great recap for us, so if you had to miss that, or if this is your first time at the table, I would highly encourage you to go listen to that on our SoundCloud, um, the table OSU, you can find that there, we post all of our teaching, so um, you can go and check that out and get caught up, is always a good thing. Um, I asked Jared to read for us tonight because there's going to be a lot of reading and because he's always so eager to volunteer. And chapter 25 has some weird names, so I gave him a heads up. He agreed to be our official reader. So, okay, Genesis 25, go 1 through 6. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Lumimim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanok, Abida, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son, Isaac, eastward to the east country. Okay. So why is the author kind of telling us all of this stuff? Um, it's, it's right there in verse 5 that Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. Um, by the way, raise your hand if you knew that Abraham had six other sons besides Isaac and Ishmael, right? Like I feel like unless you're just carefully reading through Genesis, that's such an easy thing to miss. But he does. God gives him these other children. Um, and he takes care of them. He gives them gifts, but he sends them on. Um, and, and it really is just kind of pointing this out to make sure that we know um, God's promise continues to rest on Isaac and the covenant is there. And so um, kind of tying up these loose ends of um, what it's going to look like inheritance wise and that kind of stuff. Okay, 7 through 11. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephraim, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Lord. Okay. So another kind of interesting thing that the author is gonna gonna kind of tie up here. He's kind of finishing um, just the the history of Abraham specifically in Abraham's life. And so one of the things that he's also noting here is where Abraham is buried. Um, and if you remember when God f first calls Abraham um, in the beginning of, of Genesis chapters back, he says, leave your 
father and go to a land that I will show you that I'm going to give you. Um, and so this is kind of one of those subtle things, but the author's just kind of, you know, pointing out um, that there's starting to be some claims in that land. So he's acquired this cave for burial. Um, and we also find out that in um, chapter 21, he's acquired wells. Um, now he has this cave. And so there's just some ties are starting to be made to this land, even though um, it's not fully his. That's not happening yet. He's holding on to the promises of the Lord that this is going to be given to his descendants. And it's kind of a cool thing that he gets to be buried on that land. It's just kind of neat. Okay, um, I'm not going to make you read 12 through 18, but that is essentially um, just the the list of Ishmael and his children and their children. Um, and in Genesis 17, um, Ishmael had already been born, and God is having a conversation with Abraham. Um, and God is telling Abraham that your wife is going to have a son. Already the Lord had told him this, right? That Isaac is going to be born. There's going to be, um, I'm, I'm making a covenant with you. We're going to, um, you know, your descendants will be more than, the, more than you can count, more than the stars in the sky. Uh, but Ishmael is born. And I think for a long time, Abraham, you know, doesn't even, I think Drew or Scott pointed this out, doesn't even necessarily realize that that is not the promise that God has made. But they're having this conversation and God says, um, no, you know, your wife, Sarah, is going to have a son and, and the covenant is going to rest on him. And Abraham says to God, um, oh, that Ishmael would live before you. Basically, like, let, you know, bless him and let this happen. Um, and God does promise that he's going to bless him. He's going to multiply him. Um, and he's going to father 12 princes. Um, and so that's kind of just the genealogy of that is being listed out that, you know, God is faithful to his promise. This does happen. Um, and that's kind of wrapping up Abraham and then, you know, his descendants. And the story is going to shift and start focusing a little bit on Isaac and then more on Isaac's children, which something fascinating that I did not know. Um, this isn't in chronological order. So we're kind of wrapping up here with Abraham and with his history of his life, but he's not dead yet, at least for the stories that we're, we're kind of going to dive into and recount. He would still have been alive for some of these things, which is super interesting, and I had no idea that that was the case. Um, okay, go 19 through 26, please. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Adon Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore him. Okay, um, so Isaac and Rebekah are married a full 20 years before God gives them any children. Um, and they struggle with infertility. And that learning that Abraham would have been alive for that, which the text doesn't necessarily point out, but if you do the math, um, Isaac is 60 when, they're, when the kids are born, but he is 75 when Abraham dies. 
So just even thinking about, you know, the promises of God that God has made, you know, the infertility that he and Sarah struggled with, and then getting to watch another miracle, really, um, of the Lord. I just, that kind of blows my mind that it was 20 years of struggle and infertility. Um, but Isaac prays and the Lord answers um, and gives them twins. Something interesting, the text doesn't tell us how Rebecca inquired of the Lord. Um, it's possible that that was like provided through another human, but there were no prophets or priests dedicated to Yahweh at this time. Um, and so one commentator kind of said maybe it was Abraham. I really don't know. The text doesn't tell us how that happens, um, but just says that it does happen. Um, and then we see that the one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. And, you know, there's a definite pattern that is starting to emerge in Genesis um, that we're going to see with the older serving the younger. Typically in the ancient world, the firstborn son um, not only got like a larger inheritance, but was the most honored and was um, there was just kind of this idea of wealth and prestige and the firstborn son, um, which is a man's idea. And so it's, it's kind of cool watching God, um, man with his ways and God with his. Um, but if you pay attention, you'll pick up on that pattern. We see it with, um, with Ishmael and Isaac. Then we're going to see it with Jacob and Esau. We'll see it later on with favor in the life of Joseph over his brothers. Um, and then with Joseph's sons, actually, we see, again, the, the older, um, the younger being greater than the older. So, okay, let's keep going. 27 through 28, please. So pretty straightforward there, but it's kind of fun to get word pictures in your mind and to think of who, how different these twins would have been and who they would have been. You know, the text tells us, you know, Esau is a hunter. He's a man's man, an outdoorsy kind of guy. And one of the things we know about him is that he was crazy hairy. I just think that's fun. Just kind of getting this picture of, you know, that is who he was and that's what he loved to do. And, um, you know, I just kind of think like, okay, super macho guy. And then when the text is talking um, about Jacob, um, it, from what I was able to study, kind of, I think if he had been born today, he would have been super into the arts. Um, that kind of, he was more of like a society man um, and, and preferred more, you know, to be indoors. So it makes sense um, that Esau probably, you know, maybe would have spent more time with Isaac um, and maybe Jacob would have spent more time with Rebecca, kind of just speculation, but um, they clearly have their, their favorites. Um, okay, 29 through 34, please. said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your, birth, your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Okay. So if you grew up hearing this story, I, rem I mean, I, I remember hearing this as a kid and always thinking, what the heck is a birthright? Um, but essentially, birthright was, again, back to the firstborn son, he would get a double portion of the inheritance. 
So if there were 12 sons, an inheritance would be split 13 ways, and the firstborn son would get two portions, and everyone else would get one. So just thinking about Jacob and Esau being twins, like there, there's, there's some rivalry clearly that we're going to see, but can you even imagine being just like a few seconds, like your brother being you by these couple of seconds, um, and him being the one, you know, to have this position of prestige and being the firstborn son um, is just, there clearly was some, some scheming and some bitterness there, I think. Um, I think it had to be pretty painful in a twin type of situation. Um, Jacob cooking stew, I don't, that never really stood out to me as odd. Um, but what I learned this week was that in, in a family as wealthy as Abraham's um, and what he had passed down, with Isaac, that, that was typically a servant's job and not necessarily something that Jacob would have been doing. And I did always wonder growing up, like, why did Esau not just go find someone else to give me this stew? You know, why is he at the mercy of Jacob? But probably what was happening is um, Jacob took flocks out to graze and was in charge of um, like a crew of men. And he probably didn't cook this stew himself, but probably they had tents set up and camp set up when Esau came into the camp. And Jacob kind of took advantage of that opportunity. Um, the other sort of like weird thing about this situation is we're told that Esau is a really skilled hunter. And so it is, there is just some speculation as to did he really plan that poorly that he was truly starving um, and near death? Or is he kind of being careless with his words? Um, and we don't know for sure. But one thing we do know that the text tells us is um, there at the end of 34, that he despised his birthright. Um, and the best thing to kind of compare in our minds, as far as English goes, um, despise would be the word contempt, but particularly like if you are in contempt of court. So if you're in contempt of court, you are um, dishonoring and not valuing the position that the judge and that the legal system would have. And so that's kind of what it's alluding to here is that idea that he has despised his birthright. Okay, 26, we're going to skip and not, not read all of that, but I'll just give you a quick summary. Um, and that is kind of a big chunk of the life of Isaac and God's faithfulness. So it's just a narrative of God's divine provision and promise through trials. There's famine, um, Isaac fears for his life. There's near war over water sources, um, but God is faithful in preserving their line and continues to just take care of their family. Um, we're going to jump to 27. Go verses 1 through 4, please, Jared. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love. Bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Okay. So one kind of odd thing about this, it wasn't unusual for a blessing to be pronounced on children, but it was typically all of your children, not just one. So I don't know why Esau was singled out for this. Um, although one son may get a bigger blessing spoken over him, um, but it was usually more of a family affair. Um, but Esau is singled out, and you know he's told to go and, and fix this meal and bring it in. Isaac actually ends up living quite a bit longer than when this takes place. 
Um, but he, we know that he's going blind. We will see that he's starting to lose a lot of his um, just senses. And so he wants to get this taken care of um, before he passes. Um, but just a couple things to note about this, the, the idea of this blessing. Um, it's not the same thing as material inheritance or his birthright. And it had nothing to do with birth order. Um, and it's also different than the covenant blessing, which um, is bestowed by God. And that actually is passed on to Jacob by Isaac later in Genesis in chapter 28, and then confirmed by God. Um, but this really is a father's wishes for his son. And as we see as we get into the story, they, they believe that it carries enormous amounts of weight. Um, but it is um, kind of this, this gathering to pronounce blessing, pronounce your, your wishes and your dreams and your hopes for your children um, is what's going on. Okay, 5 through 17, please. went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats, so that I may prepare for them, prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will fill me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself, and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice, and go, bring them to me. So he went and took them, and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goat she put on his hand, and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread, which she had prepared, into the hand of her son, Jacob. Okay. I feel like this is the worst idea in the history of ever, and I do not know how it worked. But there's so many things that could go horribly, terribly wrong. I mean, first of all, I do not think, if you've had wild game, it does not taste like goat at all. So I think Isaac's senses have to really have dulled. Um, and then, but the other thing, actually wearing goat. So apparently Esau was unbelievably hairy because we're going to see in a few minutes that that actually works, which is just, I mean, the whole, the whole twisted plot that they have come up with and are scheming sounds like a horrible thing you'd see in a movie that goes terribly, terribly wrong. Um, but this is their plan. This is what they're going to do. Um, one thing to note is that Rebecca kind of tells Jacob, no, if this goes bad, you know, let the curse be on me. But she really has no power or control over that. Um, but but that's, what, that's what she says. And then we're going to find out a little bit later that there is, she, she does reap some, some serious consequences for herself, I think. Um, okay, keep going um, through 29, please. Oh, no, sorry, through 25. Okay. So he went into his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac his father, who felt him and said, 
The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him, because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. And he said, Bring it near to me, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Okay, so he's, Isaac is obviously very suspicious, and he kind of runs Jacob through a series of tests um, of logic, like how did you get here so quickly, um, through touching and feeling him, the sound of his voice, which he still believes is off, but then when he's reassured by his word that, no, it's really me, Esau, your son, um, he's going to put him through one final test, and then, and then he's going he's gonna to believe him. Okay, 26 through 29. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Okay. So he kind of gives him that last test of, you know, come close to me. And when he smells the smell of the field that he knows is his son, he goes ahead and pronounces this blessing on him. Um, And there's three different perspectives or ways that we can kind of view this blessing. And the first one is social, that it really was taken seriously by Isaac and his sons. I mean, obviously for, for Rebecca and Jacob to go to the lengths that they did, they believe that there is really some weight in their father's words over the destiny of his sons. Um, it's a pretty serious deal to them. And the power of the blessing is in the spoken word, um, as we'll see in just a minute. Um, the second way to kind of look at it would be theologically, um, which is, again, I kind of said before, but it's not a prophetic message from the Lord. Um, it really does just represent Isaac's wishes for his son. You can even see that in a lot of his language. Like when he says, may God give you, let people serve you. It really is kind of almost like a prayer, you know, that he's kind of praying over them. Um, But the other way that we can look at it is just from the perspective of the Bible as a whole. Um, Because the fact that the author is including it um, kind of shows that it is important. And God does, in fact, bless Jacob in this way. Um, You know, this blessing actually does come to pass, which is interesting. Okay, 30 through 38. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, Esau's brother came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and 
and all his brothers. I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. So you can see that um, this idea of the blessing really is huge to them. And it's not, Isaac feels like it's not even something that he can take back. He says, I have already done this. I've already blessed him. I don't have anything left to give you. Um, so he's, he's going to say in the next couple of verses what he can. Um, but there's not much at all. Go ahead and read 39 and 40. Then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your hand. So that's really all he feels that he has left to offer in speaking this blessing, is that eventually your descendants will be able to break free. That's kind of all he can give him. And Esau is about to be furious. Okay, go ahead and read 41 through the end of the chapter, please. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite woman. Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to you? Okay, so Esau is completely furious, and although he had given his birthright away previously and had despised it, um, I mean, this really sends him off. And not only is he comforting himself by thinking about this murder, but he's talking to people about it. I mean, he is actively planning it. Um, and so the interesting thing about Rebecca earlier saying that she would kind of bear the consequences of the curse um, is that Jacob is her favorite son, and she now has to send him away for what she hopes will be a few days, but ends up being years and years and years. Um, and that's kind of where we, we see like what has fallen out. We've got Abraham, Isaac. Now we're to this place where we have this schemer and this trickster, Jacob, and then this ready-to-just-be-murderer, Esau, and this is what is happening in the family. So we're going to take a quick break, and then Drew's going to talk to us about what God does when those are his options. Okay, let's get going here. Um, one of my favorite kind of movies, maybe this is universal, maybe everybody likes these things, but uh, one of my favorite kinds of movies are, or shows are the kinds that have really great plot twists in them. Um, the kinds that you have to always kind of be leaning forward and paying attention to, and, and even then sometimes you won't see it coming, kind of the big twist or the curveball that it throws at you, or even I like the movies that 
Like, um, we'll throw little tidbits of information or, or show you a scene that doesn't even make sense in the moment until you watch and pay attention and then it all kind of comes together. Um, now, I, another thing I really love is my wife, all right? But I don't always like those two things together um, because my wife is the kind of person, I don't know how many of you guys are this kind of person or friends with this kind of person who likes to ask a lot of questions during movies. Um, including questions that nobody can possibly answer at that point in the movie, right? Like, so a movie opens and a guy's driving his car and he pulls it over on the side of the road and then starts walking in the woods. And my wife is like, why is he doing that? Why is he going in the woods? I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't know. Where do you think he's going? Babe, I've literally been watching this as long as you have, which is, which is 45 seconds, right? So I don't know the answer. She's that because she always has those kind of questions. I always thought that was really odd until the first time I watched a movie with her family. And like within the first couple of minutes, your dad was like, what's that guy doing? Why is he doing it? Like, oh, this runs in the family. Um, so I love those kinds of movies. My wife, I think, likes them. But she, you know, she just... She's just, she always thinks she's missing something, even if she's not yet. And so she's always asking these questions, just in case there was something she missed that she was supposed to know that everybody else saw, you know? Um, so there's this guy, uh, his name is Alexander Campbell. And he is largely responsible for what is known as the restoration movement in, in the United States of America. Um, if you uh, grew up in a church, or if you go to a church... Uh, now with the word Christian in the title, like Sunnybrook Christian Church, First Christian Church, uh, Cherokee Hills Christian Church, anything like that, uh, then you are a part of the Restoration Movement, uh, or Church of Christ actually finds its roots back in that. And, and a, lot of, a lot of that is owed to this guy by the name of Alexander Campbell. And, and Campbell and a few others, a lot of what their movement was kind of built on is they, one of their major issues is they felt like the Bible had been clouded over by a lot of like traditions of man and by a lot of like uh, church doctrines that had been kind of established. And so people just started buying and listening to whatever the church doctrine said without actually looking at the Bible themselves to see if that's right. And he felt like that got in the way of a lot of stuff. And so he was trying to clear a lot of that out, a lot of the tradition, a lot of the kind of uh, doctrines and dogma that had mounted up that he felt like was getting in the way of it. So he had um, this, there's a semi-famous quote for those who, who know who Campbell is will kind of recognize uh, probably this quote. He says this, um, I have endeavored to read the scriptures as though no one has read them before me. And I am as much on my guard against reading them today through the medium of my views of yesterday as I am against being influenced by any foreign name, authority, or system. Now, that's a little bit wordy, and it's written in some like 1800s style dialogue, so let me translate. Uh, Campbell said, whenever I read the Bible, I try to pretend like nobody else has read it before me. I try to pretend like I never sat in a Sunday school class and somebody told me what this means. Try to pretend like I never heard a sermon on this, like I've never read a theology book on it or anything like that. I pretend like I'm the, the one, the first person to sit down and read this and try to make sense of it. And then he goes on to say, and not only do I try to pretend like no one has read it before, I try to pretend like I've never read it before. Like I don't, I don't want the things I read about Genesis 25 yesterday to affect me when I read it today. I don't want to go, oh, I, I already know what that means. I want to pretend like I got no clue what's going on. And I want to try to read it with fresh eyes so that I'll see it rightly. Okay, now, that is an idea that is um, one part really dumb 
and one part really genius. Okay, not, not one half and half, like literally the whole idea together is dumb and the whole idea together is genius. Um, it's really dumb because it's, it's actually kind of foolish to, to try to ignore all of church history and to ignore what uh, the church has said for thousands of years on a topic as though the Holy Spirit just now showed up and he hasn't been working to convey truth to other Christians in centuries past. That's, by the way, how cults get started, Right? Guys like Joseph Smith go, hey, everybody's been wrong for 2,000 years, but now God's revealed the truth to me. And, and so, that's, so that's, that's dumb and that's dangerous to just kind of sever yourself from all the teaching that you could be gleaning from the past or from your teachers or preachers. Now, at the same time, though, it actually is brilliant because there's so often that we, we miss what's in here because of what we've been told. Maybe we have been told something that's wrong about it. Or maybe we've read it before and kind of got in our mind what this actually means and we've never taken the time to question that. And so either we, we're wrong and we're missing the truth or we, we, we have part of it, we've never actually seen the full depths of it. And so um, it's, it's, you've got to be able to hold these two ideas together that I, I don't want to follow the foolish part of it, but there's something really wise. That's why one of the best... Um, best pieces of advice I could give you when it comes to studying the Word of God is to, is to basically approach it like my wife does uh, suspenseful movies. And that is to ask tons of questions. To ask uh, silly questions. To ask questions that you think you already know the answer to. Um, to make observations about it that seem obvious upon first reading, but just write it out anyway. Something that you kind of notice. Whenever we had like at, at at school, where, where Scott and I went in, in our Principles of Interp class, um, whenever we were um, exegeting a passage or studying a passage, you were supposed to write at least five, like five to eight observations per verse, which means if you're studying like a, a ten-verse a ten verse passage, you should have 50 to 80 things that you've written down about that. Um, and a lot of them feel obvious, a lot of them feel ridiculous, but you, you have to pretend like you haven't seen it before in order to be able to see it freshly. And, and that's one of the things we, we try to do here at the table is, is try to, when we come here, take these stories that you've heard all your life from Noah's Ark, and, and we don't want to run away from, the, from what's been taught about it, but we want to try and peel back maybe some of the things you think you know about it or the things that you've been told so that we can see it with fresh eyes so that maybe God can reveal something new to us. And then once we see that, then we want to hold that up next to the teachings of history, next to the things that church is taught and go, does that, does that line up? Does that make, is the Holy Spirit saying to me what he's been saying to other Christians throughout history about this passage? And, and so that's part of what we do. And, and this is kind of an interesting little test case Genesis 25 and 27 kind of throws some of these things. If you were reading this for the very first time, if you didn't know anything about the outcome of this, if you had never had a story on Jacob and Esau in the Sunday school in a Sunday school class, there would be at least like three curveballs that this story uh, throws at you that you would not have seen coming. And and the first one is this: uh, that the main character is not who you suspect. If, if you don't know how this ends, if you don't know the rest of the story, actually, you'll, you'll think the protagonist is somebody that he's actually not. And then the second one is that the protagonists in this story aren't protagonists. That, like, none of them are, actually, as you begin to read through it. And, and then thirdly is the chapter that we skipped tonight. Chapter 26 
um, seems actually out of place. And you would have to ask, what in the world, how did this end up here, in this spot in, in the story? All three of those, if you were reading for the very first time, I think would strike you. And so I want to just take a look at those and, and kind of walk through them a little bit. So number one, the main character is not who you suspect. If you don't know how this story ends, it actually reads like Esau's story. And, and that's like a, a Near Eastern reader from this time. That's kind of what they'd suspect. Again, like Rachel said, firstborn, there's something significant about that. And if we're following the lineage of Abraham, well, we know that like the main blessing of the family, we know that the main name, that the main honor of the family, well, that's going through the firstborn. So if we're following it, then this, this, ought, this is Esau's story, naturally, obviously. Um, even though they, they, there's that little line in 25 verse 23 that would have been shocking to them when they first read it. The one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. That would have kind of shocked them. But probably even then they're going, okay, well, it's an underdog story. We're going to see how Esau kind of fights through this. And actually, as you read it, Esau is the guy driving the story. And Jacob is reacting. So it's a story about Esau who goes out to hunt and finds himself really hungry and he comes back looking for food and, and it just so happens that Esau stumbles upon Jacob and Jacob offers him this food. Da, da, da. And then you go a little bit more and then it talks about how Esau, doesn't mention anything about Jacob getting married, Esau gets married and gets these wives at the end of chapter 26 and so you go, okay, here comes. Here comes the lineage of Abraham through Esau and his wives. And then you see... Uh, Isaac pull Esau in and say, all right, it's time for me to bless you, my son. This, this kind of tradition that the father would give to his son, to his, to his honored son, and I'm going to give you my blessing before I pass. And then the last minute, Jacob kind of swoops in on that. And so it appears this whole time, or it would if you didn't know that, that Esau was actually the main story. But then as the story unfolds in 27 and in 28, you find out that actually the protagonist of this story is the guy who's who's seemed like the antagonist the entire time. The guy who at every turn has been seeking to undermine Esau and try and get at what he wants actually gets it. And then the story turns and that's, that's where the camera follows the rest of the time is follows this Jacob guy. And that brings us to this second idea that the protagonists aren't really protagonists at all, like none of them in this story. One of the theories about the, the Old Testament writings, like Genesis stuff, Genesis, is that they were um, ancient Israelite polemics or arguments, basically kind of um, that, that were made up to prove why they ought to have the land. So somebody, Moses or somebody far along, said, I mean, this, this place belongs to us. How do I prove that? And so they came up with these sacred scriptures about how God promised our forefathers long ago that this land belonged to us. And, and God promised forever that He would give us the blessing, that we were His cherished people. Not, say, the people of Edom. Edom, by the way, is Esau's descendants. And so they would go, not, not, the, not our neighbors down there to the south, the Edomites. No, Israel, look at the story. It's Jacob, not Esau. That's one of kind of the theories. Now, if that were true, whoever came up with this polemic did not do a really great job. Like, if you're trying to paint a story about how you're the great, awesome, blessed people of God, like, you, like you don't make up stories about how your forefather was like this scheming manipulator, this awful dude who, like, tricked his way into anything good that ever happened to him. Um, seems like you would try to paint a better picture of your forefathers than they do if you were just making this story up. 
Um, but but they, they tend to air their dirty laundry. They do not whitewash their heroes very much in these things. Neither of these brothers, though, it's not just Jacob, Esau, neither of these brothers is deserving of God's promises or blessings. Neither of them carry on the idea of Abraham. I, I want to take you to Genesis 26 real quick. Um, Genesis 26, the first five verses. This is what God says to Isaac. It says, Now there was a famine in the land, and besides the, uh, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And Yahweh appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Why? Because Abraham obeyed my voice. It kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. This is why, Isaac, I'm going to bless you. Because your father obeyed me. Because he did what I asked him to do. Now, you've read enough and you've studied enough to know that Abraham's not perfect, that he makes his mistakes. But by and large, he is faithful to the covenant that he makes with God. He seeks to do what is right. And then on the heels of this story, you go and you look at Isaac's Father who did these amazing things, and then you look at Isaac's sons, and the two could not be more different. That they are nothing like their grandfather, Abraham. You have um, this faithful man of God trying to follow, and then you come down to basically an impulsive idiot and a scheming manipulator. That's, that's what God's working with here. That's what he's got left to try and do this through, who are ripping each other off and trying to kill each other. And you have to ask, if you're reading this for the first time, this is it? This is the family through which God is going to bless the whole world. Now, now if you've been with us, you know, I think we said it on the very first day when we jumped into Genesis, um, that actually neither of these guys is the protagonist and nobody else is, and that's because the, the, the one true protagonist in Genesis is God. He's the hero of the story. And the story is not about how Abraham can overcome things. It's about how God will see his covenant through no matter what is kind of thrown at him. Um, so maybe the better way is not to say there's no real protagonist, but the better way to say it is that um, the family of blessing is not a blessing. As you read this, this is supposed to be the family that God is going to bless and he's going to bless the whole world through them. And you look at them and you go, there's no way through these people. These people aren't a blessing to each other, let alone to the, anyone else around them, let, or, let alone to the world. How in the world does God bless the world through them? It really does look in some ways like this whole covenant thing launched with this family, with this people group is going to crash and burn before it even fully gets off the ground. Does Isaac ever look back on the words that God said to him in, April, or in, in uh, Genesis 26? When he says, I'm going to bless you because Abraham followed my word. Does he ever look back on those words and then look at his sons and ask, how in the world is this going to work? Like, how is God going to use the mess that is this family? Have you ever asked that kind of question before? Maybe not so much of your family, but more like of you. About yourself. Maybe, maybe in this room you've had that happen. 
that maybe you've sat here before and listened to us talk about earlier last semester. The joy and responsibility of this fact that you are made in the image of God, which means you're not designed to try and save up as much money as you can and be as comfortable as you can. You're designed for something bigger and more important and greater than that. God made you for His own glory. You are made to live out the image of God and to bring Him glory on this earth. And maybe you listened to that and you got excited about that or you've heard us talk about things like a gospel-centered life where every aspect of my life is built around who Christ is and making Him known. Or, or maybe it wasn't here. Maybe you went to a camp sometime where you heard people talk about following Jesus with everything you had and about um, being a witness for Him and going home and telling your friends at your school about the gospel and going home and, and being a servant to the world around you and, and being someone who grows in obedience and in holiness. And, and you honestly, when you went there, you felt that conviction deeply from the Holy Spirit and you felt the desire to go back and my life is going to be different. I'm going to make my life count for God. And then you went home to the mess that is your life to to all your own failures, to your own dysfunctional family, uh, to all the consequences of a thousand bad decisions that you've made in your life, to, to that one sin that you find yourself running back to over and over and over again, and the incurring shame and guilt that comes upon you every time because you can't seem to break free of it, and you find yourself going, what was I thinking? Like, who am I even kidding that I thought I was going to do that kind of stuff? All these, I had all these big ideas. I had all these big plans for how I was going to live out this holiness and this obedience and these great things for God. And, and I can't even get my own crap together. Have you ever been there or thought that yourself? I still remember 12 years ago. When I first came to Stillwater to work with the college ministry at Sunnybrook, I came to intern. I actually came uh, to help lead worship for the college ministry. And some of you know that, and some of you, that is completely shocking. Um, but that's actually how I came here, was to, to come and help lead worship for it. And I still remember a Thursday night, and we're getting ready. It was, wasn't the table then. It was called The Brook, and it was at Sunnybrook. And, and, uh, and I'm, in, I'm in my office, and I'm getting ready. Uh, like we're like four or five hours out from, from our worship service that night. I'm going to be leading. And I was doing something on the computer. I was getting lyrics or I was, I was doing something to prepare for the night. Um, and somewhere in that process, um, I, don't, I don't remember if I, how it happened exactly. If I clicked on a link or if I typed it in and searched it out myself, I know it wasn't an accident. But I found myself on my computer in my church office um, looking at something that I know I should not have been looking at. And, and again, I don't, I don't even know exactly how long. I just know that like when, when I kind of snapped out of it and, and realized what was going on, that I'm hours away from trying to lead people into the presence of a holy God, and here I am like preparing for that, but in the midst of it looking at very unholy things on my computer, um, and I just remember, like, wanting to die. I just remember being completely paralyzed because, like, what am I going to do? Like, I can't, I can't just go, I'm not leading worship tonight. Like, it's got to happen. It has to happen. But I, I, can't, I can't go lead worship like this, knowing the kind of, kind of thing I just did, knowing the kind of person I am who looks at those kinds of things. 
and, and kind of having this feeling like, what, what in the world am I doing here? What in the world am I doing in ministry? What, what in the world, who, do, who do I think I am to try and do stuff like this? And the truth is that that's not the only time that I've felt like that. I've had plenty of times when, when I was going to get up and teach people or preach a sermon or whatever about finding your greatest joy in following Jesus and finding your fullness of identity in Him when the truth was I had very little joy or identity in Jesus in those moments. I've had a number of times when I've gone to meet one-on-one, maybe with one of you, to ask you about your own pursuit of holiness and, and how it is that you're growing and you're following of Jesus when I felt like I was not growing in holiness myself at all. And in those moments, I have felt at best like a failure and at worst like a hypocrite. I know like, you know, none of you are in like vocational ministry, so it's not like you're standing up to preach or teach, but, but I'm guessing you know what this feels like. I'm guessing you, you know the way that, that whether you're in ministry or not, that you're called to be serving Him, you're called to be doing ministry, you're called to be like glorifying Him with your life, and you look at your life and you go, there's nothing in here that looks like it can glorify Him. Not without me just being a, an absolute fake in front of everybody else. And it doesn't seem to be coming together in your mind. What do you do when you're in that spot? What do you do when you go, like I know that God has the ability to overcome incredibly difficult situations in the lives of His people, but what about the times when I am the difficult situation? When it's His people that are the problem, when it's me that's the problem. How is He supposed to do anything with this? In those moments what you need to do is be grateful for chapter 26. The one that seems out of place. Chapter 26, to to give you a quick summary of it, a quick rundown. We read about the beginning. There's a famine that causes Isaac to move to Gerar, which is the region of the Philistines. And he thinks, while he's there, that the people are going to kill him because his wife, Rebecca, is beautiful. And so he comes up with this plan. See if this sounds familiar that he decides he's going to tell them that she's his sister, just like his dad did those years ago. He's going to tell them he's his sister so that they won't kill him. And, and, and fortunately, somehow Abimelech ends up, the king there, finds out what's actually happened, and so nobody ends up taking Rebekah away from him, and he's kind of fine there. But, but after a while, Isaac kind of grows in success and favor, and his, his crops are coming in, and his livestock's coming in, and his wealth is growing so much so that the Philistines are intimidated. And they go, listen, you can't, you can't be around. You can't be in our cities anymore. You're getting too powerful, so we need you to move out. And so he moves out kind of out to the country region, still in kind of the region of the Philistines, and, and he finds while he's out there, his, his men are out there, and they're, they're digging in a valley, and they discover this well, which is like huge in an in a, in a agricultural society that, that water is everything, right? They don't, they don't have water, like running water wherever they set up a home. They've got to find it, and everything depends on that, and they find it, and they're so happy, and then the Philistines come, and they take it over and say, no, this, this belongs to us. So they go and they dig another well, and then the Philistines come and take it over, and they go, no, no, this one belongs to us too. And that happens a few different times, and he keeps getting kicked out of all these places, and, and, and you have to wonder sometimes in the middle of famine, in the middle of stupid decisions by Isaac, and the fact that he keeps getting booted off of his land and his stuff is taken, if some level of anxiety begins to kind of fill around him. 
So he's wrestling with these things. Now let me just say, this story seems to be out of place because it breaks up the story of Jacob and Esau. You have the story of Jacob and Esau, but instead of flowing all the way through, it gets cut at the end of 25, and then it picks up again in 27. Not only that, chronologically, it might actually be out of place. Because like when Abraham pulled this stunt on, on Pharaoh back in his thing, Sarah didn't have any kids. But, but if, if this is in chronological order, that, that means Rebecca has kids when Isaac is trying to pretend that she's not his wife. That gets a little hard to pull off with like little ones running around her knees there. So, so there are some who think this is actually not even chronologically in the right place, that it's been pulled out and put here, but, but not accidentally, like intentionally. So why? Well, here Isaac is looking at the way all his plans see keeps seeming to fall apart and sometimes he's the one who's getting in his own way and, and he doesn't know how stuff is going to play out for him and then there's this kind of beautiful moment in chapter 26 verse 23 through 25 it says this from there he went up to Beersheba and Yahweh appeared to him the same night and said I am the God of Abraham your father fear not for I am with you and I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of Yahweh and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. See, here's, here's what that little statement is right there. What, that, what, what we just read in a nutshell is this. It's saying that none of the craziness of chapter 26 is able to thwart God's purposes. Not famine. Not Isaac's own foolishness and fear. Not conflict with Philistines. Not somebody trying to push them out of the cities or push them out of their land or, or take over their wells. None of that is able. God shows up and says, listen, I'm still making all of this happen. There's, there's nothing that can happen that's going to thwart me and what I want to accomplish, what I want to do here. And I wonder, uh, I can't prove this, I wonder if that's why chapter 26 is right here. If the author is introducing us to Jacob and Esau here in chapter 25, and he goes, yeah, these guys are idiots. Yeah, this, this looks bad. But before we continue the story, let me just pause and tell you about a time that, that God showed up to Isaac and showed him how he had everything under control. I just want you to know, reader, but it's, it's about to get a lot worse with Jacob and Esau. It's going to look really bad, but you need to know before we get there about the God who's overseeing all of this stuff. I wonder... If Moses, when he's writing this, if the point is to say, hey, do not get so caught up with the mess that is this family that you take your eyes off of the God who is sovereign over this whole mess. Who is still able to do what he wants to in these things. I was talking to my dad today. He ended up uh, calling and I told him that I was, I was walking through this text that, that we were in Jacob and Esau. And, and he told me actually, he said, I've been in my own personal time, I've been reading through that story. And he said, uh, of all the people, my dad said, of all the people that God uses in Scripture, Jacob baffles me the most. He says, I can't, I don't get him. I don't, I don't get why he's got the kind of character he has and why God continues to use him anyway. But the truth is, this is a pattern that you will see through Scripture all the way over. Whether it's, whether it's grumpy, reluctant prophets like Jacob or whether it's uh, sinful uh, uh, mistake-laden kings like uh, David, or whether it's really impulsive idiots like Samson, God has this 
practice of being able to take people who've got no business being on his team and taking those people and using them anyway and, and, and using them for his purposes and his glory in spite of their shortcomings, in spite of their character flaws, in spite of their weaknesses. Nothing in those people has the ability to thwart God's plans. He can do what he wants to anyone. You know what that's called? The biblical word is grace. Grace. It's, it's not just something that saves you. You're saved by grace. That's true. You're also made holy by grace. That's something that you don't deserve, the fact that God continues to work in your life to make you more and more like his son. It's also the very thing that allows a person to be used. Paul uses this word grace not just to talk about him getting saved, but talking about his ministry. He calls the fact that he gets to serve God in spite of who he is grace, a gift he does not deserve. And that's what God gives to you, offers to you anyway. This idea that he will still use you for eternal significance. Now, don't let that be an excuse for laziness or sin in your life. Because it's not a guarantee that God's going to use you. It's just the fact that he can, that he's willing, no matter what, to take whatever mess there is in your life, Whatever, whatever struggles you may have, your own sin or your own anxieties or your own failures or your own flaws, that he's able to take those and move those through. Anyway, don't let it be an excuse to wallow in sin or laziness, though. Let it, let it be hope to push you on. Let it, be, let it be the factor that drives you. Let it be a resolve to make you a person who seeks to be obedient, who seeks to try and follow him and live out what he wants for you in spite of your past, in spite of the things that you fail in, knowing that he can do those things in you. This is a God who is sovereign over everything, including the mess that is your life, and has the ability, even in the midst of your failures, to use you for things far greater than yourself. Now, it may not always be the purpose that you had in mind for yourself. It may not always be what you consider to be real great things, but it could be what he desires to do with you. And that's big. That's good. So we're going to take a few minutes to sing about uh, that God who, uh, who is able to use weak and messed up people like us through His grace um, and, and is able to, uh, yeah, to, to serve His purposes through us. I want you to take a moment in, in reflection on this um, to ask uh, what it is in your life that has caused you to feel like I, I can't be used by him. I can't serve him. I don't deserve to be a part of this. I, don't, I, I, I got no business being here. Whatever that is, to take a moment to hold that before God and ask him what he might want to do in spite of it or even through it. So take a moment in reflection to do that while the band gets ready and then we'll begin to sing.